Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. Our special guest today is super popular cartoonist Lily O'Farrell, who is here to talk about feminism, dating, and a lot more. We are fortunate to have on Strangers on the Internet today, Lily O'Farrell, a cartoonist and comedian from London. She studied sociology at the University of Manchester and has apparently been told by most of the men who have employed her that she has, quote, an attitude problem. She went from doodling on the backs of receipts as a waitress to turning more seriously to drawing cartoons in the earlier stages of the COVID pandemic. Her wifey material complex cartoon had already gone viral by then, and she published her first book, Kyle Theory, in 2021, which discusses topics such as hashtag Me Too and the patriarchy, racism, internet culture, and more. Our listeners can find all that info in the show notes, of course. So braving the incels and the trolls who have harassed her over the years, Lily has acquired over 300,000 Instagram followers. Wow. Lily, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your journey? How does one become a feminist cartoonist? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So yeah, it was a very unusual journey for me. It wasn't, uh, I'm mentoring someone right now and she's done like an art degree and illustration. I didn't have any training. I actually failed art at school. So, you know, I just wanted to draw funny people and they wanted me to draw, to do watercolors of fruit bowls. It wasn't wasn't right for me. So I actually went through the comedy route. So I started uh, writing comedy sketches for a sketch group, working in comedy, working with stand-up comedians and doing stand-up comedy myself. And I would do comedy about feminism. It was a lot funnier than it sounds. And uh, often comedy about sexual harassment, I mean, on stage. And it was really an interesting journey with lots of support from loads of amazing people and also some like horrible gigs too as i'm sure you can imagine all around the uk and then i you know as i said started waitressing and doing other bits of that kind of trying to fund a creative career in comedy and i started doodling again after years of not drawing and i started to draw some of my sketches so some of the comedy sketches i had written i was drawing and uploading online and after a while they just started to snowball like very quickly people started to share them and i guess it was just like a visual clean cut kind of explainer of these things that so many women were experiencing but weren't able to necessarily put into words or like a visual aid so then more people started to follow me and dm me their experiences and i would draw them for it, like for them. I had people DMing me saying one of my most popular cartoons was explaining the term blue balls and like why saying don't give me blue balls is such a you know horrendous thing to say. And that was just from some girl somewhere in the UK DMing me saying, this guy said this thing to me and I don't think it's right. And I was like, yeah, that's been my whole teenage years of that phrase of pressuring people into sex. I put it into a cartoon and now three years later, I'm here and it's my full-time job and it's been an absolutely crazy but amazing journey. 
I love that for you. And I guess it's a good thing because with your attitude problem, I don't know if you would have been able to succeed in other areas. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah, I have definitely encountered people who are not happy with my cartoons, like co-workers in real life when I had actual day jobs and also mostly people online, usually like 16 year old boys. But yeah, it's it's I still get a lot of comments from people who are just generally a bit rubbed up the wrong way you know like the not all men stuff I get a lot of that but it's it just proves my point more so do I welcome them it you know bumps up engagement it gets seen by more people I have a couple of questions for you just following off of what you just said so one I'm a huge fan I don't know if you've ever seen this show Marvelous Miss Maisel it's about mm-hmm. a female comedian from I don't know like the 1960s I'm thinking and it talks about how tough it was for women to break into the industry back then. Obviously, that's a long time ago, but still, you don't see as many female comics or the kind of things that women might think are funny or not as well received by the general public, although there's often a female audience and and maybe some variety there. So what was it like for you to be doing uh, feminist comedy? And do you feel like it was received any differently than when you started doing the drawings along with the points you were making? That's such a great question. I've never really compared the two that well, just because they're such different environments. I mean, I love feminist comedy. It, there's not enough of it. It's pretty much all I consume. And all of the comedy I watch or have been inspired by is feminist comedy. And yeah, I watched a lot of it growing up. I mean, mostly I would just see male comedians and I started to discover people when I got into my teenagers and that's what inspired me. So I went out and did it. And comedy in the UK is like quite an interesting thing. I'm sure it's slightly similar in America and also I've heard the same in Australia. It's tough. It's like, so the gigs I would do well at, I would get up and do my thing and I would talk about incels. I would talk about my death threats. I would talk about sexual harassment, everything, getting followed home alone at night all these jokes I had and they would go down so well with young women like young women audiences it was the best ever it was like applause breaks just like the best environment so supportive so fun they responded so well and I think it's because they felt like they had permission to laugh because they had had those experiences and it was so cathartic to laugh about them but when I did comedy gigs at like country clubs we call them like working men's clubs here it's kind of like basically lots of middle-aged men hanging around drinking beer, playing pool. And I would do those gigs, I'd do it there, and it just would not go down as well. And I think a lot of it, and it's not even, sometimes it was from a place of sexism and hostility, and you felt that hostility for sure in the room. But from another standpoint, it was just them feeling like they didn't have permission to laugh about something so dark, maybe. Or they didn't feel, like I did loads of gigs with mostly like young people where the woman would laugh and the boyfriend would be looking at her and be like, okay, she's laughing, I'm allowed to laugh. And so that was quite difficult. I found it quite hard trying to, you know, there's a lot, there's phrases in comedy that's like, you have to play every gig. Every gig has to be good. And the great thing about my online presence and this community that has just accidentally been formed is that everyone there has a shared interest. And that shared interest is feminism, changing the world, making uh, fun, like laughter out of dark, complex issues that we've all experienced. And it's kind of like a ticketed comedy show. Like they've paid, you know, they've signed up for something. They've already given permission 
for this kind of content to you know appear on their timeline so it's a lot more of an easier experience I think publishing cartoons online because it's like an already approving audience than doing comedy and you know I do comedy sketches and stuff and that's good that works well because there's so much more of it on the internet now than I think in real life and that's just the way that the comedy industry is changing but I worked in tv comedy for a while too like developing ideas and I wrote an article about this but there's still this concept that feminism is niche and is only for people that went to uni like it's it's this association of feminism and academia which is just not true at all and I went to this workshop of like young people like me who are aspiring producers and directors for TV we went to this training day and this like a very experienced TV executive who is a producer and commissioner so he like chose what went on what British channels and he's pitching he's saying we should come up with all these ideas for like panel shows quiz shows game shows and I was pitching a news show like Full Frontal with Samantha B something that's like a you know women's tonight show a news show hosted by only women and his response was like yeah we just don't want to like alienate the country because not everyone has been to uni so not everyone knows about feminism and it was so shocking because it's like it's so patronizing and also do you think that all the women who haven't been to university don't care about equal pay don't care about the menopause don't care about healthcare rights don't care about institutional sexism and racism don't care about domestic violence don't care about rape like it's blew my mind so yeah it's it's comedy is an old-fashioned industry and I am glad to be moving away from it slightly in a new form of comedy which is cartooning and I love what you said about so social media has a lot of ills but one good that it brings to us is people can self-select into communities and then once they find those communities and they like what they see they can share it outside of those communities as well and then with that sharing there does become greater exposure in other groups. And as you were talking about with Boyfriend Kenny Laugh, you know, validation of, okay, if somebody I know and like posted this and I have permission to laugh at it. And I really do think, you know, you're a part of that, doing that great kind of work where because you create something that's so relatable to your followers, to the extent that those followers decide to share your artwork and it's so easy to just look at and quickly get a sense of what it is that she's saying here and how do I feel about it. You really are putting messages out there to a broader audience and I, I love that for you and I guess for us that social media allows that kind of exposure. So that's Thank not really so a question, much. just so much as a comment. <laughs> that's so kind, I really appreciate it. I have something very much related which is social media has played a very interesting role along the lines of what Michelle was saying and along the lines of your work. So on the one hand, could you tell our listeners about the not all men controversy where Instagram removed and then reinstated a post of yours and sort of talking generally about how social media has handled outspoken feminists. And then I'm, I'm going to have a, a sort of a follow-up question related to when we look at the manosphere, how it looks there. But so as from your perspective and how you've been treated, and I know you were concerned about putting the cartoon back up because you didn't want your whole account removed, especially now you have all these followers, et cetera, right? I mean, it's part of you making a living. So are you are you a little bit concerned based on that and maybe other incidents about how what happens to feminists on social media, even when it comes to the operators themselves? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like I live a very kind of fickle temporary existence where I could wake up any day and it could all be gone. And I think Elon Musk taking it over Twitter really emphasized to me how temporary and precarious it all is and how controlled it is by money. And at any point it could be taken away from me, which is why I, and from all of us, which is why I really like to have physical manifestations of what I've done, like books or articles and pamphlets. But with the Not All Men, that was such a perfect example of that. And I have other examples of that with that Not All Men cartoon. So a little bit of context for it, just to like emphasize how nuts this whole, that whole summer was. So this was summer 2021 or 2020, I'm pretty sure. And it was basically a lockdown summer. And it was when a girl in London who was about my age, I think at the time she was like 24, was walking home at 9.30 p.m. in, it was like Easter time, and she was stopped by a police officer in uniform in his car called Wayne Cousins. She was called Sarah Everard. And he kidnapped her and her body was found like a week later. And it was right where I grew up, like in my walk to school. So it was everyone was really involved in this. And it really shook the country because her disappearance was awful because it was literally 9.30 on a Monday. Like, not that it could be 2 p.m. on a Saturday. It doesn't matter. But that just really emphasized how unsafe we feel all the time. And... So people were talking about it in the press. It was like very big, people emphasizing women's safety. And obviously the backlash came, which was mortifying. And the tre- the hashtag not all men started trending on Twitter where people were saying, not all men are rapists and murderers. And it was like, you are joking. Are we really doing this again? Are we really having this conversation again? And it was just nuts to have that kind of whataboutism to take distract from a really important conversation about women's safety and about the Met Police taking advantage of their power. So I saw this great video by this TikToker called Christina Mione, and she had explained the language around not all men and how you don't need to say not all men, we know. And the example she used was this much more based in America and Canada, but it was like the example of ticks and Lyme's disease. So if you're going for a hike in long grass and you get bitten by a tick, you're like, ah, oh, damn, okay, I should get that checked out in case it's Lyme's disease, just like, just in case I've got to be safe. And no one turns around and is like, hey, 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 not all ticks have Lyme disease, okay, you can't just like assume. But it's like, I don't know every tick. I have to assume the worst in order to keep myself safe. And it would be bizarre for me to like, to assume I'm in the wrong otherwise. So that was a really great visual metaphor. And other people have used that for like poisonous snakes, poisonous spiders. And that's the same as women walking home. It's like, we have to assume that every man is, a danger to us in order to, to stay safe until proven otherwise so i did it turned it into a drawing and then oh it got taken down by instagram after about six hours like not long at all obviously it blew up people were sharing it it was just like perfect timing to counteract the the movement and uh it got deleted by instagram and their reason was hate speech and it was nuts because you get these like i'm sure you've seen them but you get these like very generic bubbles that pop up on your screen and it was like hate speech and it gives examples of things like swastikas or similar and that's what it was grouping my drawing into and I think that it had been reported by some of my trolls as hate speech against men because people were like oh great you're comparing men to insects because I was talking about ticks and honestly like just choosing to miss the point 
to be honest. But it wasn't just me that that happened to. I had, there's a New Yorker cartoonist called Liana Fink, who's great. And she had done a cartoon about, as she was growing up as a woman, different ways that she talks about men. It was super simple, just words on a page. And it was like, as a child, ew, boys. As a teenager, gross, boys. And as a woman, ugh, men. That was it. And that got deleted for hate speech as well against men. Shocking like shocking so I reported it to Instagram I appealed basically you can get this like 24-hour appeal service where they double check it but I think also loads of people were so shocked by it that they really promoted what I was saying and an article was published about it in a British publication and I think that's what potentially put pressure on Instagram to reinstate it I would not be surprised if it didn't get put back for that I've had other cartoons deleted for sexual nudity and they have just been drawings of women who aren't a size zero and it's not sexual at all they're in the shower wearing a shower cap they have stretch marks they're taking hair out of their bum crack like that was the joke of the cartoon that when you wash your hair in the shower it like gets I know it's disgusting but it was like relatable and that got deleted for, for sexual images and I find that shocking because there's so much pornography on Instagram but it's like when it's coming from a woman's perspective in a non-sexualized way it seems to be a problem for them so you know it's Instagram's just like a microcosm of what it's like as a woman in society in that you are trying to get your voice out there in a patriarchal umbrella and uh, if it's not done their way it's not the right way I think it is getting better slightly in that I don't get quite as many awful DMs and comments as I used to. There's still some bad ones, but there definitely has been a change. So that's been good. But the one thing that I do think is sad is that I have subconsciously censored myself for sure because I am afraid of losing my platform. So I don't post anywhere near as sexual content as I used to. I don't swear I have to, when I use what talk about things like sexual assault, I, do, I use like asterisks and stuff for triggers to, to prevent, you know, as like a trigger warning. But at the same time, I do it because these subjects that we want to talk about are being censored, which really sucks. Like it's really, really bad. But there are some great organizations fighting against that, like Center for Countering Digital Hate that I've worked with before. And we've talked on this podcast before about how the Tinder swindler gets to like stay on social media and amass this like huge TikTok following. And another one that worries me a lot more than the Tinder swindler is Andrew Tate. So you may have seen the recent statistics suggesting that half of all boys and men, I think it was 47%, half of all boys and men in the UK between 16 and 24 have a positive view of Andrew Tate, who of course spreads all sorts of hate about women. I'm going to mention just one piece of uh, information or misinformation he gives out, which is that he thinks that women are their husband's property. Uh, it does not get better from there, but I'm not going to repeat it. So we, we have all that. We have the situation where in the United States, of course, women's rights are under attack. It's getting harder and harder to get an abortion in a lot of places. You have bills coming out now out of states like South Carolina, um, suggesting that women should should be executed, or at least they should be subject to the death penalty for getting an abortion. It's not the only place. Given that social media is skewed the way it is and does seem to let some of these men run rampant while trying to silence or at least keep a little quieter people like yourself, how do we fight back? And is there hope? What a great question. And I'm so flattered that you think I can answer that. <laughs> I will try my best. I mean, so yeah, Andrew Tate is a really interesting slash horrifying one. I think he's interesting because he encapsulates the backlash to the Me, Me Too movement so well. He's just a great explainer as just like 
the person that that represents all of this. I mean, the other interesting statistic is in the UK, more people, more young men under 16, I'm pretty sure, know Andrew Tate, have heard of him and have engaged with him than they know who the Prime Minister of the UK is. And to be fair, you know, we've had like four Prime Ministers in a year, but still, I would hope, I would hope that that wasn't the case. So yeah, it's truly insane to me that Andrew Tate has a platform Granted, it is on Twitter, so it's Elon Musk who's given him that. On Instagram, though, he was allowed to exist for a long time and on TikTok, too, for a really long time because he was generating so much uh, so much of a following. I mean, it's very similar to Joe Rogan on Spotify. They allow him to have a platform because of the money he makes for them. Is there hope? I mean... I've met lots of young men. So there are young men who really identify with him and see him as the future that they want. And that is really scary. But I also meet a lot of young men who find him embarrassing. And he's a joke. And he's someone that they joke about. And it's really what I'm finding is it's just becoming more polarized. So when I was a teenager, it definitely was more blended. It was more of a gray area. But I'm finding that now the young people I meet under 16, particularly, it's like they are either very liberal, very progressive, or they are really going down the other route. And there's not much in between. And it's like tribal. I think Andrew Tate, with so many of these men, these... uh, you know, manosphere influencers, they are, it's like self-help masked as like gamifying, hooking up with girls. It's self-help. At the start of all of this stuff, it's self-help. It's taking advantage of young men who have insecurities, no responsible adults or people at home. It's taking advantage of poverty. It's so many things. And in the UK, and I'm sure this is the same in America, the you know, radicalization for young people, and I'm going to include misogynistic extremism in that, including people like Andrew Tate, radicalization affects people the most who have those things. So if they're living in towns where youth support has been cut, there's less job opportunities, and there's more poverty, and they don't have a responsible parent at home, they're more likely to be radicalized. And these are the people that Andrew Tate is speaking to, which is really dangerous, because these are people that need help. And even like, I watch a lot of pickup artists on YouTube, like the game and stuff like that, those kind of people. And what's interesting about them is they will do these talk to cameras. These men will do these like chats to these guys watching. And it's all about just, you know, the first thing of the day, just get out of the house, get out, just approach a woman, go for a walk. And it's so much of this just self-help. It's just like depressed guys who've been rejected or heartbroken. And instead of having any self-reflection on that, they're kind of harnessing their misogyny, their hatred of women and blaming women for it. But when it comes back to it, the hope that I have when I speak to young men in my DMs, especially who like approach me with anger, and when we talk, the one thing that I find and when they understand it, they really get it is that we're on the same team. So the things that they are upset about that they think that Andrew Tate is the answer to their prayers is things like, you know, they might have low self-esteem when it comes to attracting the opposite sex. They might have low self-esteem about their body, about their masculinity, about money, about showing off their wealth, all that stuff. That is all a product of the patriarchy it's not a product of women women haven't said that you have to have a big car and a flashy watch that's the patriarchy that's caused that and we hate it too like we want to topple it together so join us don't blame us and i can you know i can empathize slightly i mean empathize is the wrong word i can i can you know logically understand i guess why people are blaming these young men are blaming women because it's easier like it's easier when i look at things like QAnon, it's a lot easier to blame you know the rich one percent 
for the problems, some problems that exist like poverty in the US than it is to blame all of the actual like nuanced, very specific economic and historical reasons. It's like, I always think of grandma Abraham, granddad Abraham Simpson in The Simpsons and he's like pointing and shouting at the cloud. That's what it's like. It's like just, it's just finding something to to put on. And that's what it, all these, all these kind of radicalized things have in common. It's lazy, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think young men are willing to learn. It's just, you know, we're not out to get them. And these men like Andrew Tate have made them seem like, have made it feel like this war, like this aggressive war. And the women I know who know young men who are engaging in him, they just are like, dude, chill. Like it's not, it's not that deep. We just want to talk. Like there's definitely this immediate instinct to fight with them this aggression this hostility that I find quite scary and you know people do talk about like the porn side of it I'm really interested in that I don't personally believe that porn directly causes things like sexual assault but I think what does is the lack of education around porn and that's a great example of that I think I'm only 27 but my sex education was just like men get erections and women have periods and that was it. Like there was nothing about women's pleasure and there was nothing about porn and safe sex, safe online sex. And I mean, we're getting into a whole other subject now, but that, you know, that is definitely a factor to play in how these young men are viewing women as well, I would say. I think hearing that, so something I end up talking about a lot as a therapist with clients, this is gonna be anytime there's interpersonal conflict, I advise people to think about a Venn diagram where, you know, Venn diagrams like the two circles and they have some overlap. And so I say one of the circles is you, the other circle is the person who you're in conflict with to try to have a productive conversation where you guys move forward and can maybe see each other's point of view. Or as you said, remember that you're actually on the same team is to look for that middle area, that overlap and try to work out from there. So what are the things that we do have in common? And so I wonder if that might relate to how you are able to have the level of empathy you do for some of these boys who get sucked into that incel kind of ideology. And so I am wondering, we are, how have you found a way to approach them? What does allow you to do that? You had said in another podcast interview, you want to make them feel included in feminism. So I can certainly hear this idea of how can I remind them that we're on the same team by showing them that I do see some of their point of view. How are you able to do that? And what has been effective to help them hear you out and be willing to consider your point? God, that's a good question. I I mean, I'm very self-critical of the empathy thing. I really try and have a critical awareness of it because there's this term that I really like called empathy, which is an overemphasized empathy towards men that we don't have towards women. And I'm so aware of that. And I think I've definitely subconsciously had that in the past. And I also think we see it all the time in the press with things like mass shooters, was particularly when it comes to white men, it's like he was a sad man, not a terrorist, right? So I'm really aware of that. And I really try not to have empathy. I really try and see it separately. I think when it comes to an adult man that is in my DMs, that is not anyone I have any sympathy for. When it's a man that's like over 21, that is someone who to me, I'm not going to engage with because that is a danger to me, particularly if they live in the UK. It's just not worth not worth my time. But when it's someone who's under 18, that is someone who is still, it's like clay. They're still being molded by the world. So that's someone I want to engage with. The empathy thing, I think that's come from an awareness of having intersectional feminism. And when your feminism is intersectional, you take in so many things like race, 
you know, transphobia, things like that. But you also look at class and in the UK, there's like such a, I'm sure, you know, a very deep class divide and having those awarenesses of these kind of structural, you know, these awful structural kind of levels, I guess, has made me a better feminist because I've been able to talk to different women and different men, different people based on those other factors. I think that has helped me have empathy for young men. But I guess when it comes to talking to them, the thing that's always the case is that they approach with anger. So that's something I've learned. And it's very much through trial and error. So when I first started engaging with them, it was probably lockdown. And they, I did this cartoon about incels and loads of other stuff. And they just found me through a men's rights Reddit page that has since been deleted called MGTOW. It stands for men going their own way. It's like a red pill kind of on the route to incel radicalization ideology. And they found me on there. So they kind of bombarded me with, you know, comments and DMs. And I started engaging with them with hate. And it wasn't working. It wasn't working. I was just isolating them more. I was just pushing them away, making them more angry. And, you know, it's not my responsibility to educate them. And it's not my responsibility to de-radicalize them. It's a lot of work, but it doesn't bother me. If anything, I find it cathartic. So I'm happy to do it. But I understand why other people don't want to. It's very draining. So I would engage with them in a really measured, calm way where I would really try and like pull apart what they were angry about and separate it from me and from feminism. That was the key. So it was like rummaging through the stuff and getting to the root. So the thing that they'd say is like, you're the reason that so many men are dying by suicide. Like feminism is the reason that men are depressed. And it's like, okay, there's a horrible thing to say. That's really upsetting, but like, let's look at what you're saying. So you're saying that you feel isolated. You're saying that you feel lonely. You're saying that you feel depressed. Is that not maybe a symptom of male friendships that's caused by the patriarchy? You know, I have so many amazing female friendships and I feel sorry for some of my male friends who've never hugged their friends, things like that. And so we would talk and they would open up to me. And I think it really helped them to understand it's just about separating the issue from the cause. So that allowed me to have empathy. Also, you know, it's difficult. I've, I have a brother and I've watched him go through those teenage years and it is lonely, it is isolating for men. It's not, you know, it's not harder. There's no competition, but it's hard for them and it's hard. Masculinity and the pressures of it are hard. And I really think that feminism can help them because like I say, we are fighting for the same thing. So yeah, it's it's an ongoing journey. I think I'm still learning, but there are lots of great organizations in the UK as well, like Beyond Equality that I've been talking to and they go into schools and talk to young men about misogyny and about Andrew Tate and have workshops. And I think again, it's like coming from a place of generosity that allows people to feel on board. And there's a phrase that my friend introduced me to that I love and I pretty much live all my cartoons by. And it's called, she calls it calling in instead of calling out. So this is the idea that calling out is like, you're wrong you're stupid, you're an idiot, that's not how you say it, this is how you say it. And what that does is it just isolates people further and stops them from wanting to engage in the subject. It's like, oh no, I'm embarrassed, I'm gonna go hide. But calling in is just kind of putting your arm around someone and being like, oh yeah, I probably have said that, I know what you mean, but actually I say this now and this is why. You're not stupid, but this is just how it is. And it's like, if that happened to me, I would then go away and be like, oh, I'm gonna learn more about this now. I feel included, I feel empowered. So that's kind of what I try and do with these men is calling in. So you in fact became a bit of an expert on incels over the years, right? And I, I'd love to give a little bit of the, the story on how that happened to our listeners. So by the way, uh, 
Fun fact about me, I am apparently the first person to have used the word incel in an American law review article, even though the word had been around for several years at the time. So this was very interesting. I mean, I just discovered that randomly when I was, you know, doing research to the legal database. I'm like, wait a second, how is that possible that there's nothing else about incels out there? So you sort of became an incel by like infiltrating some of their Reddit spaces, right? And so you've had this whole journey from that to today, even like sharing handouts on the topic, like hundreds of times. So how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, it's nuts. It's, that's fascinating, though, about you being the first person to say the word, because obviously, I'm sure you know the origin story of the word incel, which was, yeah, so it was Canadian, a Canadian woman, bisexual, autistic woman called Alana, who set it up, and it was actually in Vassell, right? And then for involuntary celibate, and then it slowly got changed to incel. It was, yeah, it was nuts. So I knew about incels before. I had studied sociology, and I was really always really interested in, like, online subcultures, that was just a, I had been one of those teenagers who was extremely online all the time. So I had come across similar spaces before. I was kind of gaming adjacent. And I think when you go through all of that, you are very aware of things like Gamergate and the hate that exists in these platforms. So yeah, I started getting the trolls on my DMs and comments. And I was interested in this wave where it had come from all this sudden hate. So I found someone had seen my cartoon on that subreddit men going their own way so I started on reddit and I started to look at these pages like men's rights which I'm pretty sure still exists men going their own way the red pill incels incel hates pickup artists the one that still exists which is called seduction on reddit which is just a kind of like unofficial pickup artist page so I spent a lot of time on these just fascinated learning about these men being kind of on this journey of radicalization without maybe realizing it it was like watching this pyramid scheme it really was it was like each level would get more and more extreme more isolated it would start with a hatred for women and misogyny and then similar to lots of famous awfully famous incel mass shooters like Elliot Rogers it started with that and then pick up artists kind of techniques and when that didn't work it would then go into the isolation thing so men going their own way was like I'm not engaging with women in my life at all whether that's in work my mum my sister girlfriends friends I don't talk to women they're inferior and then from there you have incels and then you have the black pill which is this just like super nihilistic I'm either going to hurt myself or hurt others kind of mentality. And Men Going Their Own Way has since been deleted because of a shooting that happened in the UK in Plymouth by someone who identified with the black pill and the insult ideology in 2021. And that was when I published a cartoon about incels, kind of about everything I'd learned. From Reddit, I went on to 4chan and uh, the deep dark areas of the internet that I just stumbled into. And I really learned a lot about these people and about NEETS as well, which stands for Not in Employment, Education or Training, which is a real interesting crossover. And, you know, and Doomers, which is a similar idea to the Black Pill. It's just like these just kind of like unemployed and depressed young men who don't feel like they have much of a future because of things like climate change and the recession. So it was a real interesting thing because there were some parts of it I could empathize with. I definitely think I could empathize with the Doomers. I definitely think I have empathized with the NEETS before, like, but obviously the incel stuff I didn't but so I published this cartoon and it was really just my idea was look like parents and teachers or my parents generation did not grow up online like I did and there's this whole other language that they don't understand whether that's memes and images or like dialogue the incels use and slang so how can you get 
teachers and parents to not feel intimidated by that because a lot of the time I found that they would just be like oh it's an online thing I'm so bad at tech I'm not going to engage and it's like that's not a choice anymore that's just not a choice anymore you have to engage to understand it and prevent this kind of radicalization happening so it was an explainer a visual explainer of the memes and the language and the ideologies to look out for kind of like catch them early and it just blew up and I think people who worked in education and also interestingly people who worked with young offenders or anyone who was vulnerable to radicalization were really keen to have a copy of it and just really were desperate for a resource that was explaining everything from the ground up from the beginning super basic so I made it a free available PDF online so people could download it and use it. And then I also just like printed and sent out a bunch of pamphlets to schools around the UK who didn't have access to printers themselves or didn't have the budget. And people would just like have them on the coffee table in staff rooms. It was nuts. And then people were messaging me saying that they had safeguarding trainings at their schools where they were being taught it. And then someone did a PhD about the manosphere where she included them. And now the UK is... is interesting kind of anti-radicalization program by the government called prevent they do a lot of work with any kind of radicalization anti-terrorism they now use the cartoons too in like safeguarding trainings around local councils in the uk so it's nuts it's nuts people want the visual explainer people are you know they want an easy tool an easy colorful funny happy tool to understand such dark things and there really is a demand for it so ever since then that's kind of influenced how i do my cartoons it's like how can i can do something slightly educational and wrap it up in this way i kind of call it like rolling a poo in glitter like it's something horrible that's making it easy to present to someone it's so funny, we had seen that quote of yours and wanted to ask you about it because it is, and it just makes so much sense given what all you're saying about we've got this really dark stuff out there and you wanna be able to have a productive conversation about it, a conversation that challenges some of these concerning ideas that people have if they're only listening to the red pill or the black pill kind of works that are out there. So for you, knowing all of that that's out there, having waded into those worlds a little bit and and really seen it firsthand as well as like with the DMs you get and all of that. How do you decide what you're going to write and draw about? How do you decide what makes the cut? That's so interesting. It's changed so much. It's evolved so much over time. So at the beginning, I had a backlog of experiences that I was working through. It was dating experiences, mostly ex-boyfriends or colleagues that I had been harassed by kind of like uh, family friends you meet at parties that roll their eyes at you, those kinds of experiences. And then it was my friend's experiences. And then it grew from there and they started to become more like satire and bigger cultural ideas. And some the thing that like makes me happiest, the best feeling in the world is when I see someone comment on a cartoon and they tag their friend and like, this is what we were talking about the other day. Like that's that's the best comment I can get. Or I got off someone DMing me saying like, she said, oh, it's like you're in the room when me and my friends are talking. And that was about the dating app cartoon. And it's like, so I guess it's trying to put my finger on the pulse of what like culturally people are struggling with or talking about or dealing with and, you know, vocalizing it in a funny, educational, easy to digest way. So that's how I decide to do it. But it's like... It really mixes it up. I try and I'm so aware of people's like poor attention spans. So I really try and do one off one on and how I do it is like an educational one, a funny one, an educational one, a funny one to give people a break. 
because they can be quite text heavy sometimes. Sometimes there just aren't enough visuals to explain it. So like I did that dating app one, which was very research statistic diagram and text heavy. And then I did like a silly one about the clitoris. So even though, you know, that is a serious subject, but so I try and mix it up. It's really anything. I get a lot of DMs from people pitching ideas to me, which I love. But honestly, the best thing, and I've talked about comedians, a lot of my friends are still comedians, and they talk about writer's block. And I always say the best thing you can do is get up and go out and hang out with your friends. Because every time I hang out with my friends, I get an idea. Like me and my friends were sitting around talking about this word that we use that I had never really thought much about. And it was like brochialism is what we call it. And it's like socialism bros. So it's like men on the left who have the same political views as us who exclude feminism and women from their political thinking. And it was like this word that we would, you know, like super left wing men who would just like end up being really shitty to you and us kind of low key misogynistic without realizing it. So it's this word that we like threw around. And that's the kind of thing that I would go away and think about and then turn into a cartoon. So it's so influenced by, I think, my age and yeah, the kind of things that we are growing up around and dealing with and grappling with. And what's great is that it's what I've discovered is it's relatable to loads more people than I thought it would be. And that's the best feeling. It's like, I also say like uh, having the faith, having the trust that if it's happened to you, it's happened to someone else. So even if it's just me and I haven't even spoken to other people about it, I'm putting it out there and I'm going, is anyone else feeling like maybe? And everyone's like, yes, this is exactly what I was thinking. So it's, you know, it's just as cathartic as it, for me as it is for other people. It's a relief to know I'm not the only one. And the dating app one was a great example of that because I was like, I hate this now. It's been 10 years and I'm done. And to have so many other people to be so on board with that was just maybe felt like I was part of a really great community. So speaking of dating, which is, of course, the, the big focus of our of our show, you stated in a piece that you wrote for Elle in 2021 that you love dating apps, but that you've gone back and forth on telling your dates about your Instagram account, which is obviously a really big part of your life. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, I did love dating apps when they first came out. I loved, I was 18, I loved Tinder. I also discovered Field and I loved Field and I still kind of have a soft spot for it. I think it serves a great purpose and I've had really positive experiences on there. But my, it's a, it's a love-hate relationship that has slowly turned into hate just mostly because of dating burnout. But yeah, the Instagram thing is really difficult because I started using apps before I did this so I've experienced both sides of it and you know the the cartoons are like very much like a diary they're very autobiographical they're very personal some of them I talk about my sexual fantasies I talk about my difficult experiences everything and I've really flip-flopped between whether I put my Instagram handle on my social media or not and these uh, it's just <laughs> it's so difficult because even when I even when I don't put my handle on there I get people messaging me about it because they recognize me might have like quite a distinctive fringe I think that's what does it or they're just like they'll be like oh my friends share your cartoons and it's really flattering and I do really love it but it's also really hard to navigate because people know so much about your life before you meet them it's like an uneven date and people get touchy like I date men and the men that I date, so many of them get touchy. So like, I don't have my my username, in my, I don't have apps right now, but the last time I was using them, I didn't have my username in them. I didn't have my page. I just said I was a cartoonist. And this guy is like pushing me. He's like, can I see your cartoons? When can you let me see your cartoons? And I was like, sure, this is the page. 
he comes back like half an hour later and is like, oh, really cool stuff. Triggered has a man. Ha ha. Like, are you going to do a drawing about me? I hope not. And it's like, that's, that's the general vibe. Like, I had a friend who dated a guy for five years that I knew from school. He was like a kind of friend of mine. And when she broke up with him, the first thing he said was, is Lily going to draw a cartoon about me? And that is, yeah, just like eye roll. That is the kind of thing I'm dealing with. So there are two, you know, the silver lining of it is that it is a great filter that has been kind of the good thing of it. It's like people's reactions are, if they ghost me after they found my page, I could not have a clearer answer. We are not going to get on. But if they engage in it in a way that's just like normal and not terrified, not with a tail between their legs, that is someone that that's a really positive way of kind of filtering that out. So, you know, it's hard. And also I dated someone recently. It was so weird who who I met on an app and he was like, oh, this is the most starstruck I've ever been on an app. I've been following your page for two years. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. You know, I, I still find comments like that crazy but it's, that's really kind. Thank you. And we and then we went on a date and he was like, how's your dog? How are your family? I remember when you quit your job and went self-employed and it's like the most uneven date ever. And then eventually when we ended things, he was like, can we stay in touch? Cause I'm such a fan and I can't wait to see what you do. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> you can follow my page. But like, that's so, I just, it's like existing in this whole other realm when you're I don't know I just it's like there's me and then there's this like cartoon Lily and it's like separating the two and I find it really hard and the truth is is that I do draw about my experiences with men I just do so when men are like are you gonna draw a cartoon about me I say like no but often I'm like you know what maybe but I'll change your ethnicity your name everything so it's not obvious it's you but more often than not I don't and more often than not I get men who I know being upset, thinking and being paranoid that I've drawn about them when I haven't, and they've just outed themselves as doing bad behavior. So, you know, it's a minefield. And I've really learned that the only way to be successful in your field, whatever it is, is to not care what people might be thinking, because these men are always going to get offended and always going to get upset and touchy. So I just got to do it for the girlies. That's what I say. I just like, <laughs> do it for them. And uh, the right men will come along afterwards. So yeah, I'm not on apps right now. I think when I go back to them, which I'm planning on going back to soon after my break, my like two month break, I think I might just like bite the bullet and put my username on because they're going to see it at some point. And I don't want to have to like, it seems so sad to have to hide my work and also my principles and my politics from someone And I don't, you know, I wrote about in that article about going on a date and this guy being really aggressive and hostile to me because of my cartoons. I don't want that again. So maybe I just, you know, pull off the plaster and put my most graphic cartoon straight up on my hinge. See what happens. So some of what you've talked about there is specific to what it's like dating when there is that unevenness where there's a lot of your life out there for people to to see and know in advance or for a fan to be able to go on a date with you. And so that's not something most of us are going to experience. But all the same, you are just an incredibly emotionally intelligent person. And so I still think while your experience on the apps is different now that you're more recognizable, I think our listeners would still be interested in what advice do you have, maybe even specifically for women trying to navigate the dating market and life generally, in a world that often still treats women worse than men. And when you know what you're going to encounter on the apps, I wonder, I mean, I'm sure part of it is what you just said about 
maybe it's best to just not hide who you are to just kind of be out there about this is me. And so the trash takes itself out or people self-select in. But is there other advice that you would give to people out here on these apps or trying to navigate this dating world? Totally. I mean, yeah, I the best advice I think I can give is to basically treat yourself the way that you would treat your friends. So when my friends tell me about their conquests, particularly my female friends, it's like, I think that they are so great and so deserving of the best kind of behavior and attention from men that I'm always like, I have their corner, I have their back, and I'm always supportive of them. But when it comes to me, I'm so much more willing to let people walk all over me and to not seek what I want. So I think it's almost like listen to your own advice. If you're telling your friends how great they are and how much they deserve, apply that same love to yourself. I think it's kind of a cliched self-love thing, but it's not even about self-love. It's about treating yourself with the same respect that you treat your friends, because that's how they see you. You know. So I think that's really important, and I try and think about that a lot. And then I would also say, you know, there was a great podcast by The Cut recently about dating apps. I'm sure you came across it. And they talked about, I think it might have been in that podcast. It was about how what we think that we want in dating, often we're wrong. So we have all of these kind of, I definitely have them, all of these like rigid ideas of like what our perfect person is and it will like fall into these different age groups these jobs these appearances these types and I think that's a product of dating apps because we've been so used to like applying those filters and gamifying it but I think allow yourself to have experiences that step outside of those regimented standards and I've definitely found that so a great example of this is like I used to think that I could only ever date someone who had exactly the same tastes as me in stuff and the same views on stuff and by that I mean like same music taste comedy movies and then political like very similar political views because why would I date someone who was like right wing and I still wouldn't date anyone who was right wing but what I've learned is to find the meeting like the middle ground which is like okay I want to date someone who's left wing who has the same like moral compass as me but it's so fun and so interesting and so eye-opening to date someone who's like slightly different to you on a tiny kind of like has had a different life experience or is maybe a different part of the spectrum on the left wing end like maybe that's so I've dated guys who are more left wing than me and I've dated guys who are more centrist than me and I've found those experiences to be more exciting and just like interesting and fun than the ones where we're exactly the same because what do you have to talk about if you're just dating a mirror of yourself and you know I've spoken to my friend about this and she said I think she was totally agreed and she said people underestimate the joy of introducing someone to something and I think that's a great example of that so you know I've dated guys who've been into like heavy metal and that's not something that I'm into but I'm really willing to engage in that and there's something so great about being in love with someone and sharing your love with them and engaging in their interests and their passions so you know just because you love I don't know, just because you're like obsessed with the violin, for example, like you love the violin, you want to play the violin all the time or like chess. It doesn't mean you have to date someone who's also obsessed with chess because it's boring. Like find someone who's obsessed with like skateboarding. Do that. That's something that I think is a quite good dating advice. And it really counteracts the heavy, heavy, heavy filters that we are encouraged to put on our profiles. And I, you know, I still I use Hinge when I did use Hinge, I would still use liberal because it's so vague but I have found that I prefer to date someone who has like different life experiences to me so like childhood and stuff and it just makes you more of an empathetic person 
you know, I was just thinking about, I, I did listen to the entire series that you're talking about by the cut and there was a lot of interesting stuff there, but one of the things that struck me is they did not really spend a whole lot of time talking about sexism, if memory serves. And so there were a lot of people come. I don't know if that was your perception also. There were a lot of people coming on there and you'd be like, oh, it's hard for men and it's hard for women. And oh, well, it's hard for everybody. And the algorithms are not going to be perfect. And you know, there, there was a lot of that. And, and like it did critique the industry. But I mean, when we think about things like uh, one stat that I always bring up, recently is is this study by Columbia Journalism Investigations showing that one third of women who have been on dating apps have been sexually assaulted. Like, how can you not talk about that stuff? It's like one of your, your kind of key pieces. If you're going to do this multi-episode investigation of dating apps. And so this is where, for me, it felt like it was a bit too... I don't know, it, it, it sort of was not nearly as harsh on the system, let's say, as it deserved. So anyway, I don't know if you have anything to, to add to that. But another thing I was curious about is if you want to tell us about the worst date you've ever had and why it was so awful. So I mean, just throwing the ball. I totally way. agree with you. And I read some studies when I was doing my dating app cartoon about this, about the increase you know, the increase in sexual assault and these experiences women had had because of apps. And something that's really interesting, I find, is how, you know, how obviously Grindr came first and then Tinder followed and Tinder was very much modeled on the Grindr model. And I find it fascinating and terrifying when my gay friends who are men talk about using Grindr and going to a man's house who they've never met to have sex or just to whatever and not meeting them in a public place and there are some gay men who don't do that because they think it's unsafe and then there are some men who are much more cavalier about it and as a woman I would never I would never ever put myself in that situation so I I think that tinder when it was invented and this is what the podcast missed talking about was how tinder was modeled on grinder without necessarily taking into account that whilst yes not all victims are women most of the perpetrators do tend to be men so when you are taking when you are using an app with heterosexual people or whatever women and men in whatever capacity you have to include that danger into your app right and encourage a hookup culture that put more people in dangerous positions and you know, it's it's evolved slightly. Like Field is quite good for that in that people talk very openly about these sorts of things and about safety and safe words because I think when you engage in things like kink, you have to have that informed awareness. But in terms of like my worst ever date, oh, honestly, there's too many. But I think I once went on a date with a guy who thought it was really impressive. This is just lame, but he thought it was impressive that he shoplifted pizzas and he and this was like this really posh guy who had like a trust fund and he was like I shoplift pizzas I'm hard do you want me to show you and he was like giving me advice and trying to get me into the supermarket it was like mate no this is embarrassing I'm not gonna engage in that that was pretty bad I also went on a date with someone who we got quite drunk and we went to get food afterwards just like junk food and when I came out he was asleep on the street so that was fun so I had to wake him up I've been on a date the thing is, I mean, this is the thing is like, I'll talk to my male friends and their worst day ever will be like, this girl was boring or this girl was like, you know, 
too vapid for them or whatever and then they'll be like what's your worst date and I'm like I don't want to tell you because I'm gonna bum because I was like put in danger and it's a bummer it's not a funny story I was I was intimidated and pressured or anything like that I was I've been on more than one date usually this usually this is like a second or third date thing that I found where I've gone back to a guy's house and have wanted to leave and have had to move their body away from the door to get out like that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about when these guys are like oh she like she didn't like Seinfeld can you believe that (laughs) and that's their bad date story and then for me it's like it's just so I mean those are the kind of if I could just throw in something here the story I heard in that context way more than any other is men being like oh she was a lot heavier in person than her picture showed number one by far this is their you know dating horror story that many men have which is just yeah as as a woman is just laughable but sorry no no I totally agree and I think the the catfish word I really hate because I find that it's it's used it's kind of become this own misogynistic slur the catfish it didn't used to be applied to women and now it's kind of become that oh and I hate that and I think it's yeah I mean it's definitely something I worry about I think a lot of people worry about it on apps meeting someone in the flesh and how they're going to see you you know how they're going to judge you based on your appearance compared to pictures I don't know I mean I've heard people I've heard people talk about like he wasn't as tall all that stuff that's not really something that bothers me like I love a short king but I I don't know I I've never been I think this is why I found apps quite difficult is that I've never been a first attraction kind of person like I'm not attracted to looks it's more about like getting to know someone which does make it hard with apps but yeah, this is the thing. It's like my worst thing stories are just people pressuring me into sex or me going like, I'm going to, I'll come back with you. Yeah, but I don't want to have sex with you. And then it's like, you know what? One of my worst ever ones, and this is a great one, is I was, this was like someone that I dated who was my boyfriend. This is really bad. We were like making out and he said he wanted to have sex. And I said, I didn't. And he said, let's compromise. And that is crazy to me what? because it's like compromising is like what? choosing to go see a movie. It's not sex because so that I would put that yeah, as like that's a one no and it's done. <laughs> yeah. Compromise. It's shocking. Yeah. And I explained it to him and he was like, oh, you're teaching me so much. It's like I would prefer it if I wasn't. But I guess we're here. <laughs> Irina is writing a whole book on this and I, really? I don't know if the whole book is on this, but at least some of the chapters, because I know for our, our listeners who might be interested when the book comes out, I contributed one of the stories that'll be anonymous, but it was similar though to what you were talking about, about how once you're in somebody's home, how they can try to be coercive about trying to convince you to stay or that you then owe them something. Let me not exactly. steal the thunder about your book. <laughs> No, no, thank you. Thank you, Michelle, for uh, for uh, selling my stuff here for me. And it's, yeah, I mean, the stories and, and right, some of which are in the book and also stories you, you hear online and just from other women in general, like, I mean, some of them men just would not believe, like they can't even comprehend. And and it's, some of it is just, just how casual some of the sexual assaults are. Like, and, and if people think, oh, this stuff only happens because you took the person back to your apartment or you went to their apartment, some of these people will get aggressive in the street on a first date, in the street. And, and this is something, unfortunately, many of us have experienced firsthand where you're sort of like, what exactly do you think you're doing? Like, it's just, and this is where I do think some of them 
get ideas perhaps from from porn and sort of get inspired shall we say that way even though there's obviously no excuse right i mean it's you can you can blame it on porn or not it's still your responsibility that you did it so anyway do, do you want to tell i'm speaking of books do you want to tell listeners about your book kyle theory and uh and about that and like i said that's going to be in the show notes oh, that's, so why don't you share about really that nice. so it. yeah i will it's it was born out of lockdown it was born out of everything we've talked about like the trolls and the not all men cartoon getting deleted all of that stuff and it, what it basically is is me existing it's like a it's like a kind of, I would describe it as nonfiction with a kind of story thread. So it's like a hybrid between fiction and nonfiction. And it's, it's loads of my cartoons, some that you would have seen, some that you wouldn't. And there's two characters in it, me and my troll. And the troll is like actually a troll, like a green guy you'd find under a bridge. And he starts off with this like aggressive kind of ignorance about feminism. And I take him through the basics with my cartoons, with things like empathy, with you know, understanding the intersections of feminism. And by the end of it, he becomes a fangirl. And it's like a really nice, I think, kind of like wholesome introduction to some feminist theory, some funny, silly sexual cartoons. It's a real mixture of the two. And I think they work best together. Yeah, and it's like a great, I I like that it's, some people say that they like have it in their toilet or on coffee tables for guests. And I love that, that it's like slowly, positively radicalizing people who come over for tea and they're just like picking up this book. And also like, People have messaged me that they've got it for like their their 63 year old uncle for Christmas or like their dad. And they've what's been so great about it is that it's been so positive that these men, my friend's dad is like a foreign diplomat. And he's in his 60s and he like loves my cartoons and it's so and he loves the book and it's so nice and it's so sweet that they feel i love that they feel engaged and involved and seen and i think that's probably i i would hope that it's because it's coming from that like positive generous standpoint where it's calling in you know so they feel they can approach it so yeah definitely get it if you want to read it no worries if not which is my catchphrase i think a lot of people have bought it and use it as a counter on their bedside table like a coaster for their with their water which is fine like some one of my trolls dm me and was like your book your book is great for using for firewood and i was like hey you know at least you've bought it i still get the money so <laughs> that's right <laughs> so thank you so much lily for this amazing conversation i i have to say look if the whole successful artist and author thing doesn't work out for you. I'm here to offer you a job at my practice. Your emotional <laughs> intelligence is off the charts. And I think our listeners will learn so much from hearing your perspectives on things. We're really uh, grateful to have had this opportunity to speak with you. Oh my God, thank you so much. Honestly, I would be on a plane tomorrow, please. <laughs> That's so kind. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved talking to you both. It's been great. Well, we're going to definitely, I feel like we're going to have to have like a strangers on the internet reunion of all our guests at some point, like something like that. Michelle, we got to think about that. So look, thank you so much, Lily. You can find Lily on her website at volgadrawings.com. That's V-U-L-G-A drawings.com, where you can also buy posters, cards, and other amazing items with her art. And you can also commission her work there. Of course, she is on Instagram at volgadrawings. All of that information and links to Lily's book and more uh, are going to be in the show notes for this episode. If 
you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.